this week on the Backtable Podcast. I would say that for all the young people in practice, as you develop your specialty, if you're oncology or wherever your specialty is, if you're in women's health, it's so much a matter of knowing that anatomy and knowing where those nerves arise from. And regardless of where you are, you could be doing PAD work and the patients are coming in with terrible claudication. You can help them with that. Of course, you want to revascularize them. You want to solve the underlying problem, but you can help them with that immediately with the right kind of blocks. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable MSK podcast, your source for all things musculoskeletal. You can find all previous episodes of our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on backtable.com. This is Michael Barraza returning as your host. I'm joined by my friend and mentor, Stephen Hunt, interventional radiologist at the University of Pennsylvania. Stephen, thanks for coming back on. Thanks for having me back on, Michael, and thanks to the Backtable audience for tuning back in. So we're going to talk about pain interventions today, but before we do that, and I, I know I've asked you this before, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about Piggy Lab and what you guys have going on right now. I would imagine that you and the pen interventional radiology community probably have a lot coming for SIR this year. Yeah, we always have a big showing at SIR. I mean, our lab is, as you know, heavily focused on interventional oncology, both the imaging side and developing new imaging tools all the way through to new therapeutics. And a big push of ours for the last, really the last decade is about precision medicine. And so how do you make the right intervention for the right patient? And can you tailor the treatments? And so even when you think about one of our most basic treatments like chemoembolization, many of the drugs that we use were really not made to synergize with the embolization itself. And so we're developing new therapies around that, but we've also got work in augmented reality. As you know, I've got a big active practice in global health as well. So trying to think about how do you take the interventions that we do here in the West and adapt them for low resource environments and kind of bring IR to the world. So it's a pretty broad research effort. And thankfully, we've been pretty good with the NIH funding. And so we have a pretty active research group at Penn. I think we're up around 25 or 30 folks in the lab. And then a lot of the residents and fellows are involved in research as well. That's awesome. You've also had a very busy research career over the last like five years or so since I left Penn. What are you working on right now? So a couple of the projects I'm working on, one is a new embolic that we're trying to combine with different immunotherapies. So looking at the idea of can you synergize with the release of tumor antigens that happens with a lot of the therapies that we do with the existing checkpoint inhibitors and other immunotherapies. And so trying to take what we do in a local regional way and make that a systemic treatment response in a patient's body so have their cancer be attacked everywhere, not just the spot we're treating. Because when I think about what interventional radiologists are in the interventional kind of landscape, I think in the, in the kind of war against cancer metaphor, you know, I think of the medical oncologist as this general that's directing a battlefield and they've got to look everywhere. And what we do is we come in as special forces. We're coming in to treat a terrorist in one spot or one room, the liver or given lobe of the lung or whatever. And so patients will come to me if the, let's say they have widely metastatic disease and they'll ask me the question of, can I treat all this? And it's like, no, that's what your medical oncologist is doing. You know, radiation oncologist might be able to treat a certain area as well, a surgeon to treat a certain area. So We are all much more on the level of individual special forces. And so whether we can then take what we do on an individual level and make that a systemic process by activating the immune response, that's something that's more exciting and kind of gets us more towards a broader-based oncology intervention practice. So working on things like that, obviously we have a lot of animal models that we use for that, these rat models, and moving into larger animals like pigs. We're developing a new electrolytic ablation device. We're developing some new hyperpolarized imaging for looking at early recurrence of cancer and seeing whether we can detect that better and the molecular pathways that are involved in cancer recurrence. So it's a pretty broad research effort, and I'm working on you know a lot of different projects in that. 
that's exciting and, and also not surprising. So let's talk about what you've been doing from a clinical standpoint. When I was at Penn, which is like 2016, 2017, you were still relatively new attending, but you had already carved out a pretty significant role both at Penn and nationwide as an interventional oncologist. And I'm just kind of curious, I've been able to follow what you've done, you know, in the literature, but at Penn, like how has your practice evolved over the last five years or so? So when I first started as a junior attending, one of the holes in our portfolio, you might say, in oncology was someone who is dedicated to the lung practice, both treatment of lung cancer as well as just treatment of any cancers going to the lung. And so I started one of my first tumor boards that I went to very first as an attending was the lung tumor board. And when I looked at it from a demographic point of view, that was what was so interesting to me. Of course, we have about 150,000 deaths from lung cancer. And the next one is colon cancer, 50,000. And then the next one is breast cancer, 40,000, prostate cancer, 30,000. So when you added the next three cancers combined, you did an equal lung. So it just felt like, why are we not in this much larger oncology space? Now, part of that is, is because there's a variety of treatments that are pretty effective. And the molecular characterization of tumors and lung has been such that there's a lot of really good targeted therapies developed over the last decade or so. And then part of it is, is that radiation oncology and surgical oncology have been the lion's share of the business there. And so we're pretty late to the game. Now, as the population ages, and that's happening in the United States, and as you have folks with a lot more comorbidities, then the value of us as minimally invasive interventionalists really increases. And so that was very important to me. And really, that's what developed into my pain practice is that for most folks who are showing up with disease, eventually we're not going to be able to completely eradicate their disease and they're going to progress. And we need to be offering them basically help from there from the point of view of the suffering that they're undergoing. A lot of the reason why we got into medicine, yeah, in part to extend people's lives, but a lot of it is about relief of suffering. A lot of times we can't solve their problems, right? We can't solve their medical issue. We can try to manage it, but a big part of what we do and why people who go into medicine, they go into medicine to relieve suffering because they've got a heart for the human condition. And so I think that that's, and particularly when you're that kind of person who really feels strongly for your patients, and they're showing up and they're saying, it's just what's bothering you, it's pain. And what people are actually afraid of, at the end, most people that I find, they're afraid of pain more than they're afraid of dying. And so being attuned to that and being attuned to listening to folks talk about the suffering involved in the families as well, I just thought, you know, I got to get myself more educated on the subject because it's not something that we necessarily learn that much in interventional radiology or in medical school in general is how do you manage that. So starting pain interventions as part of your practice, that came as, as an offshoot from interventional oncology, from your oncology treatments. Yeah. So how did you do that? Go about learning more about this and go from there to instituting that in your practice? Well, I would say the earliest patients I was doing, it was because the oncologists were sending them to me to say, can you treat this tumor? And I was saying, well, the person's got pretty extensive metastatic disease or whatever. And they're saying, no, but it's for the point of view of you know, just trying to decrease their pain. Now, that can be everything from someone with large volume tumor mets in the liver, and you're trying to decrease the capsular expansion that you're getting with that, to our pancreatic cancer patients who've got a lot of visceral pain, or patients who have metastases to the retroperitoneum who have a lot of visceral pain. And so you're talking about doing celiac plexus interventions or hypogastric interventions, those kind of things, to in the lung practice, of course. A big part of this is intercostal pain, related pain. And so this is patients who are post-thoracotomy. So the thoracic surgeons were sending me those patients. Maybe they don't even have cancer anymore, but they've had a thoracotomy and they've got residual chest wall pain. 
then once those folks, you know, thoracic surgeons were sending to me, the breast folks <laughs> learned about it and said, hey, we have these patients who are post-mastectomy. And so you end up with these patients who have chronic post-mastectomy pain. And many of these are young patients who have had to undergo, obviously, a grueling surgery to eradicate their cancer. And maybe it was successful, but they're left with this debilitating pain. And so those were all mostly from the interventional oncology practice. But as I started to do that, I started to learn about the various blocks. I had done a lot of celiac plexus blocks. At, you know, you trained with Dr. Solon at, at Penn. And so he had to practice that. And so I learned it. Now I kind of adapted it because he did most of his under fluoro. And I just was much more comfortable and maybe felt a lot more precision with doing it under CT. And so that's where I started developing the uh, celiac plexus practice. That's interesting. So, you know, I, I guess I assumed that most of the ones you were doing were primarily patients with cancer-related pain. And it's interesting that you're doing the ones like post-thoracotomy, post-mastectomy. And so you're getting patients sent specifically for pain management in addition to cancer therapy? You know, it's interesting, but with the advent of immunotherapies, recurrent shingles is a big issue. And so patients come to me with shingles and they happen to be oncology patients. And then they, the docs know that, hey, they've heard that I can treat that with intercostal blocks or intercostal neurolysis. And so I get those folks. I've had a lot of family and friends who have had radiation treatment, let's say to a breast cancer or lung cancer or mediastinal cancer, and they've got radiation necrosis of ribs. And so the radiation oncologists then started realizing, hey, here's something that we suffer from because they see their patients afterwards and are like, great, I killed your cancer. And the patient is still miserable because of the treatment that they had. And the radiation oncologists feel terrible because, again, they came into this medicine, again, to relieve suffering. And here they are. They've whacked the mole of killing the cancer, but then they've left the patient with debilitating pain. So the patients are referred from all over. And sometimes it's a self-referral because on our website, I'm, I've listed as doing pain interventions. But also there's a lot of word of mouth within the cancer community. And so folks know that you are willing to do that. And then I work closely with the interventional pain folks as well. So we have a pain service at Penn. I don't take that for granted. I think that that's a very special thing that we have, that they work with me. And, you know, maybe I send them to a patient to get medical marijuana or to get fentanyl patches and, and some kind of long-term management. That's a whole specialty field unto itself. Yeah. And so I send the patients there, but then if they have a specific pain in this given spot and they think, hey, this might be something that would benefit from a local regional intervention, then they send them to me. But it's a bi-directional thing where I'm sending patients to those other services as well, and then they're sending me back patients. I think that's probably pretty unique in the interventional radiology community, what you have going with that. Yeah. I mean, I do. I will say there are folks like Sean Tutton, David Prologo down at Emory, who I've really picked their brains on a constant basis. I mean, David and I went to Africa together, and so I had a lot of opportunity to kind of, he couldn't get away from me. He was in Nigeria working with me on a project getting interventional radiology going over there. And so he's just done a lot of international work. And so I've had an opportunity to interact with him on that basis. But also, I think that both of us have this passion for relieving suffering related to pain. And one of the things there, I'll tell you a very early anecdote in my career, which is that I had a patient who I had done a, I think it was a hip metastasis. And so musculoskeletal metastases are very painful. And the musculoskeletal surgeons, what they have to offer them is things like, I mean, the, the surgical oncologist called me up and said, look, I can cut this guy's whole hip out, but I think he's going to lose the leg. It's like a four quartering, you know? And so if you've got something to offer, or this lady, sorry. And so I, we did, basically I did an ablation and cementoplasty, but I still sent her home with some pain meds because it's still even the immediate post-operative, post-intervention period, it's going to be painful. And I get a call about a month later 
not even thinking about it, I get a call from an ED doc and he's like, I've got this young lady in here, 22 or something. And she has this bottle of pain pills and she overdosed. And I was trying to figure out, I was like, I don't have a 22 year old patient who I prescribe pain pills to. Well, she had gone into like her grandma's medicine drawer or whatever and gotten the pain pills and then overdosed. And I knew that overdoses and that we as doctors were partly responsible for kind of the opioid epidemic, but it really brought it home to me as in a personal way, because of course I called the pen lawyers. I'm like, am I liable here? that kind of thing. But more from, a again, what we're trying to do is relieve human suffering and how much are we contributing to this problem? We are now over, in our country, over 100,000 deaths per year. I think it's 107,000 last year from opioid-related deaths. And many of these things, this problem started with docs overprescribing opioids. I'm sure that for the most part, you know, there's a couple bad actors, but for the most part, doctors are doing this because they're trying to relieve suffering. And so if you can find other ways of relieving pain in a more permanent basis, in a local regional way that avoids the opiates. I think that's an opportunity for us to adapt our practice and to avoid the problems that come downstream. Just to illustrate it on the other end, so that's that's kind of early in my practice, but just in December, I had a patient who came from radiation oncology. He had stage four lung cancer. One of his metastases was to the underside of his scapula, his left scapula. And this patient was in such excruciating pain. Now, he tested himself everywhere else, but that was the one that was really hurting him, that he was on a total of seven different opiates and plus gabapentin. And he was basically almost comatose all the time. The way his family brought him in, it was kind of in a wheelchair. And this was not, this guy was like 54 or something. So he was not that interactive, but like, yeah, this is killing me. I, I'm completely debilitated by it. So we brought him in we were able to get him in pretty quickly because those kind of patients, I'm trying to really get them in quickly if we can get some intervention and brought him in and did a, did a cryoablation of the tumor, but at the same time did some permanent neurolysis of the underlying nerves. But in any case, I called him in January. There's a one-month kind of checkup. We do some telemedicine now. And he's he can hear some windiness in the background. I'm like, what's going on? He's like, oh, I'm out walking the dog. You've completely changed my... He just kept saying thank you. He literally said thank you because I was on with a resident with me. He said thank you something like 17 times on that call. Yeah. And he just said, you completely changed my life. And did I cure his cancer? No. Does he still have widely metastatic lung cancer? No but it completely changed his life. And that to me is the benefit of a pain practice. And just another anecdote that way, I had a patient who had lung cancer. I had treated it in the adrenal. I had treated it in various spots, but he got this sacral metastasis and it actually grew almost out to his skin. And his wife said, you know, he hasn't slept in the bed for more than a year. He kind of goes and lays on his side in the easy chair and in the living room trying to get comfortable. And he's never comfortable, never sleeps, et cetera. And so I talked to him and he's like, I just take away my pain somehow. I said, listen, if I treat this thing, you're going to end up with a big sore because I got to treat close to the skin to get rid of it. I'm mean, going to really kill these nerves and whatever. And he said, I don't care. I'd rather, I'd rather deal with that than the pain. So I did the ablation. Indeed, he had to go to wound care clinic for a while, but he's, you know, he had some kind of, you know, whatever it was, wound dressing on, but he had no more pain. And his wife said it completely, he was able to come back to bed. And she said, thank you for giving me the last few months of his life. When he passed away, first of all, he wrote me this long letter, I guess, before he died that she gave me. And then talking about how he changed his life. And you get those kind of letters from folks where you cure their cancer, but I've gotten invited to more funerals and more from family members who just said, you really took away the suffering of my family member at the end by virtue of being willing to treat their pain when nobody else was able to. And not only that, but just letting them be awake and interactive with the family in those last few months because they're not so doped up on all the stuff we have to give them systemically. That's sometimes what it is. It's helping them die comfortably. And 
it is a growing part of my own personal practice. And it's probably the, the most immediately rewarding work that I do. You know, I also treated a sacral metastasis recently. The guy was just absolutely miserable. And it was a good learning experience for me because I think when you approach these, you have to be willing to try multiple things. If one doesn't work, you know, I mean, you have to keep going. And at least in my experience, for this guy, I tried to embolize his tumor first. You know, it should have been hypervascular with neuroendocrine tumor and it shrank a little bit and it got a little bit of improvement. So I was like, all right, you know, next we're going to ablate this. So I ablated it, did cementoplasty and it got just a little bit of improvement. And for me, what was really useful was I don't have an established pain service, but I do have a network of doctors that I work with when, you know, if they have somebody to refer to me and I refer to them. And, and this one, I reached out to the pain doctors like, look, I, I've tried everything I have. Is there anything else you can do? And he's like, this is perfect for a pain pump. And so he put in a pain pump and it was a combination of the three treatments, finally got him comfortable enough. His wife texted me like a couple of days for the first time in six months, he asked for a meal, you know, asked for something specific. And I mean, that's some of the best work I've done. Yeah. I mean, I think that in many patients have described it and their family described it as pain makes you crazy. Pain, literally, you can't think about anything else. It's just what's on your brain. And I, I hear this from a lot of communities. I mean, I've even gotten referrals from folks with MS where their neurologist is like, they've got chronic pain. And sometimes it's in a given spot where you could do a nerve block, like a genicular block or some other thing that it relates to. And so one thing that really revolutionized my practice over the past really year or two was that during the pandemic, we have all these academic funds. And one thing I'd always wanted to learn about was pain blocks at a more higher level. And so I started taking these online courses and there's a variety of them, not to plug anyone, but the one I did was NYESORA, NYSORA. And they're fairly pricey, but they have an online compendium of blocks and a lot of their work is focused on ultrasound-based blocks. But the point is, I learned some tips and tricks from there and a lot of it is anatomy. It's going back and as radiologists, I feel like interventional radiologists were somewhat specialized in learning anatomy. You think about when you did neuro and, and you had to learn all those various fossas in the frontal and behind the eye and things like that. So knowing where those nerves are, like when I did that guy's subscapular neuroablation, I knew where that nerve runs. I knew where I could put one little probe and take that out. And that's the difference between, you know, he had gotten the tumor radiated, but they're not focusing energy in this one little spot where the nerve is. And that's why I think that a lot of times radiation is failing is that they're not able to target the nerve with that specificity. And I think the nerve doesn't respond at the same level as it does with cryoablation. So I'm a big believer in that. I will also say, obviously, there's cost involved with cryoablation. And so for a lot of my intercostal work or my celiac plexus neurolysis, I'm still using dehydrated ethanol for most of those. Now, for pleural-based metastases growing into the rib, I do a lot of cryoablation for that because I want to buy myself a more durable treatment. And you're able to knock back the tumor some, and so it's not growing into periosteum. It's not just about the intercostal nerve. There's other pieces there of pain. And there's pleural-related pain. The parietal and the visceral pleura both have pain fibers. And so it's also a matter of treating that to some degree. So I do do cryoablation in those settings as well, right there on the pleura and pleural-based metastases from mesothelioma and things. So I did develop a practice, obviously, because I'm comfortable doing a lot of lung ablations, I'm comfortable doing those kind of interventions. Stephen, I actually have a patient with a pleural-based metastasis coming in this week. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious how you're doing them. For the intercostal ones, you know, whether or not you're doing cryo or, or alcohol, do you do a traditional block with lidocaine first to see if it's going to be effective or do you just go straight to the neurolysis? If they have a very focal referable with that dermatome radiating, that I think it is referable to that spot, I will go ahead and do, I won't wait for the testing. If they've got a bunch of kind of more diffuse pain and I think it's referable to this or that, then I will do a block first and say, come back in two weeks. I'll actually schedule both and just cancel the second procedure if it didn't provide relief. But I will say, 
I don't do just lidocaine blocks. So that's one thing I learned from the interventional pain folks. So lidocaine buys you a few hours. And I'll say this about the lung, let me just start with lung ablation patients. When I first started doing lung ablation, I just used lidocaine and I did try to target intercostal nerves. I think I wasn't as good targeting as I am now. But in any case, I did do that. And I would say that the patients kind of right at the two hour mark when they're getting discharged, they started, started aching and we'd give them a little oral medication for the road kind of thing. Then I started adding bupivacaine. So bupivacaine obviously has a much longer time of action. Usually I'd, I'd say it buys you 12 to 18 hours. So those folks would be calling back the next day or so and saying, well, I'm really hurting. It's like, yeah, take the pain medicines I gave you. It's okay. You can take them now to get ahead of the pain. Then I started doing what I learned from the interventional pain folks, which is I started adding a steroid to that. So my current mix is that I'll do a lidocaine for the skin and wheel and things like that. And then I put 0.5% bucivacaine. They, it comes usually in a 30 ml bottle and I'll mix in a bottle of Kenalog, which is triamcinolone. And so that's usually 200 milligrams. I'll mix it in there. And then that's what I use for my blocks. You're putting like about three mLs at each intercostal level. So that's kind of my, my go-to cocktail. I, actually, one of my students has got one of those educational exhibits at SIR this year, and I put all that in there. But you go in there now, folks will call me two or three weeks later, and they'll say, oh, I'm starting to get a little achy. If I didn't do a permanent neurolysis, if I just did that. So oh, I'm starting to get a little achy. I'm like, it's okay. You can take some pain meds. You might try something benign like Tylenol or something first, but they're not calling me with acute sharp pain. They're calling me with kind of as that wears off. And so I think the steroid... And it makes sense because you think about when we do knee blocks or any of the kind of you know, orthopedic blocks that we do, that's a common thing, right? You're trying to decrease the inflammation. And so I think that's something that one of the little tricks that I learned from taking these kind of courses is how to make those blocks last a little longer. So when I'm doing a permanent neurolysis, so sorry, to get back to your original question, what I do is I do the block, I wait 15 minutes because the ethanol burns, and then I do the ethanol. Okay. How much ethanol? So for retroperitoneum, if I have a good placement of my needles between the celiac and the SMA in that kind of anterior aortic space, when I inject the bupivacaine mix, I have like one ml of contrast in that whole like 35 ml solution, right? I see the diffusion. If that looks pretty good, then I'm usually injecting only 10 mls for a celiac. And it used to be I had to put like 40. And the literature goes all the way up to some people doing 60, right? So that's just not necessary if you got your needles in good position. The other thing I should say about celiac that I learned about, again, from pain folks, and this is quite some time ago, but I did learn about was you've got to have retrocurl as well. So you've got to not just be intercurl, but you've got to be treating the splanchnic nerves coming out that are going into. And so those are two different nerve populations. One is the cell bodies and the celiac plexus. But those flanknicks are also interacting with a lot of other little nerves. They're coming out through the spinal, you know, dorsal columns, whatever, anterior spinal cord. And then they're coming through and those things are sitting retrocurl. So if you do both, you move yourself from kind of the 60% efficacy up to the 80% efficacy or something. So you buy yourself a bit more efficacy with your celiac plexus. Now for the intercostals, I'm usually doing about one and a half to two mLs per level of the ethanol. And I usually, one of the things you have to keep in mind with ethanol is, of course, it would be catastrophic. And it's case reports, but there's a few case reports of that ethanol getting back. If you're either in the nerve or with your needle, or if you're too close to the spinal cord and get it into the spinal cord and causing paralysis. So I'm very conscious of that. And of course, what you can do is either position the patient that side down to allow that to be, just use gravity to run along the nerve. And then I'm usually coming a couple inches off of the spine when I'm doing it. And I'm orienting my needle lateral, even if I have the patient in the prone position, I'm watching that diffusion of the block, for example, and making sure that I'm not getting stuff coming back too close to the nerve root. So that's another thing. Now, if you really need to get central, because you've got a tumor that's growing into, let's say, that space with the rib and the, uh, the spine, then what I do is I call it cryorhizotomy, which is just a term that I make up. But rhizotomy is where the surgeons will go in and actually just put a scalpel right through that area and just try to cut out that 
I think it's a dorsal root ganglia or whatever. You can put a cryoprobe right there and you're not going to freeze all the way to the spine, but you're going to freeze that nerve root. And that can be pretty effective for treating when the tumor is just too central to be doing these blocks. But if the tumor is more anterior or lateral, are you typically putting your needle or probe like near where the tumor is or are you starting more posteriorly? For the actual getting rid of some of the tumor to buy yourself time, yes. No, I just mean for pain. For the pain, I'm usually doing a block first. So I'm coming posterior. So you're coming posterior, even if it's like a painful tumor that's kind of anterior or lateral. Yeah. I mean, you obviously you have to be at least posterior to where the nerve arises posterior, you know, wrapping around. So at least you've got to be there. I don't know how far back you'd have to actually go. But the other thing I'll mention, I don't think that there's a science there related to it. I mean, I do know that you can think of these intercostal nerves as being tree branches that then branch out into the individual little tree branches and leaves. And so at any given level, you've got nerve supply coming from above and below. So at the very least, let's say you have a tumor at T8, you've got to be treating T7 and T9 as well. And so okay. if you're going to really take away the pain, it's not just a one level thing. And so if I'm going to do an ablation, I'm oftentimes doing a three level block, even though I'm only going into one intercostal space, or at least a two level block of the space I went in and the space below. But usually it's a combination of three. And that's going to give you also just a much better because you're able to get those, you know, the pain fibers that are coming from above and below. So what about post-thoracotomy? How do you target a specific level where you're going to do your treatment if it's post-thoracotomy pain where it could be more diffuse? While it can be lateral chest wall diffuse, I still will start with where the thoracotomy was. So let's say a lot of them are T4, T5, it depends on where they had to enter. So those are the levels that I'm targeting. And those might end up being, because maybe they took a couple ribs, a couple portions of lateral rib. Then I'll be treating, obviously, maybe sometimes five levels. You'll be doing T2, T3, T4, T5, T6. So you're trying to get the levels above and below wherever the thoracotomy was. If it doesn't work and you're just doing blocks to first relieve the pain and get them past the reset or whatever, then you can also go and do like the long thoracic or these kind of lateral blocks that will get nerve fibers that are coming down from above. And a lot of these are planar blocks where what you're doing is you're basically getting your needle in between the two muscle groups and whether that be a bicipital block or whatever. And then that blocking agent is running in that layer between the two muscles. And that's where a lot of the pain fibers are running as well. And so you get a much broader block that way. Now, I've never done any ethanol neurolysis that way, but when you have these more diffuse ones, at least you can see if that's where the pain is arising from. And then, of course, you've got to get closer to the nerve root to actually where you have a specific nerve you can target for more permanent neurolysis. Stephen, one last question I want to ask you on this topic is how you set expectations with these patients. You know, I heard how you did it in clinic, but just to share with the listeners, I mean, these patients that you're primarily trying to treat their pain, how do you set expectations and explain really what your goals are? So without getting too specific for a given site or something like that, my macros, when actually when I'm dictating in clinic, talk about this set of papers, for example, on cryoablation said that for this particular distribution, you've got an X percent efficacy. One thing that I always have them do is say, look, there's a very simple tool. It's the Wong Baker face tool. Everybody knows it as the happy face and all the way to the sad face, right? And so I'll just have them tell me, like, where are you at on this one to 10 scale? And then I want you to go home between now and when I see you for the treatment. And I want you just three times a day, tell me what it is when you wake up, tell me what it is midday and tell me what it is when you go to bed. And then if you have really bad pain in the middle of the night, go ahead and write that down too. But I just want you to have that. So we have an idea of the trajectory. We have an idea of when things are bad. Then afterwards, I'll have them do that same thing. And so you're having them keep track of it. And just by keeping track of it, actually a lot of patients tell me they felt more in control. And sometimes when they come back to me for the treatment, they're like, I'm already feeling somewhat better just because I recognize now Part of what drives a person crazy is they just feel like it arises out of the blue. Once they can kind of see the pattern of it, they know they're kind of able to prepare themselves mentally for, hey, it always happens in the late afternoon or whatever, you know. 
But anyways, I'll do that. And then I tell them, look, this is what we know. I will say that I used to quote them, for example, on the celiac plexus, the published literature, which is somewhere in the 50 to 70% range or whatever for efficacy. But then as I've gotten much more targeted and learned to do the retrocurls, so hit the splanchnics and stuff, I'm able to tell them my own numbers. But that's something that you develop later in your career as you have your own practice. I also know that there's a lot of other factors that go into it. If you've got widely diffuse pancreatic cancer, a celiac plexus block may not diffuse enough to really be effective. And it may not just be the celiac plexus. It could be other nerves from other sites in the abdomen that are wrapping around or in some way related to that visceral pain. And so then those patients, you just say, look, I'm going to do this because it's a Hail Mary, right? Like, I think that the chance of this working is not great. However, it's probably got lower morbidity than all the opiates that you're on. Stephen, is there anything else that we didn't cover that you want to go over? No, I mean, I would say that for all the young people in practice, as you develop your specialty, if you're in oncology or wherever your specialty is, if you're in women's health, it's so much a matter of knowing that anatomy and knowing where those nerves arise from. And regardless of where you are, you could be doing PAD work and the patients are coming in with terrible claudication. You can help them with that. Of course, you want to revascularize them. You want to solve the underlying problem, but you can help them with that immediately with the right kind of blocks. And so learning how to do these pain interventions and spending a little time doing that, first of all, most of those are billable practices. And so, you know, if you're in private practice, that's obviously something that's important. In my case, it doesn't really matter. You know, I'm, I'm paid a salary. But I think that you have this ability. It's almost like a superpower. I mean, I've done a lot of liver ablations now, for example, at the VA and patients who just very difficult to get anesthesia. They've got all kinds of other medical morbidities. And I've done them just local, just by doing good body wall block, a good visceral block, a good parietal block. And I've even had, you know, I had a very wealthy patient who came in. She's like, I don't want to get any sedation. I'm flying out this afternoon. Da, 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 and she wanted this liver tumor bladed. Did it all under local. She did fine. She chatted through. And it was a liver ablation. And it's because if you can do the blocks, now that don't always, if you got to treat close to the capsule and stuff, it might not be enough. But Right. The point is, is that it is. And I learned this from actually Damien Dupuy, who does lung. He's able to do either single agent or just local for the vast majority of his lung ablations. And he does them in an outpatient setting, like an outpatient OBL kind of thing. And that's because he has learned to put 30 mLs of epivacaine down in that plural space and do a really good block. And so a lot of residents have even called that. That's not a term I came up with. They're like, wow, this is like a superpower because you have a patient where you're doing something too and normally you'd see them writhing around or whatever. Right. And they are just, they're not feeling it because you've done a really good block. And it does take practice. I don't say you start off just getting rid of sedation in all your patients, but when you learn how to do it, at the very least, you can reduce that, which means you're reducing the risk of aspiration. You're reducing the risk of patients getting over sedated. So there's a lot of benefits to the upside if you can do blocks. Now, it does take time at the beginning of the procedure, but it can be quite effective for relieving suffering. And so that's a big thing that I think is the reason why we went into medicine. And again, that's a, that's a big part of why this practice has grown so much for me. Well, Stephen, thank you for joining us and sharing your expertise. And thank you for our listeners. And we'll catch you guys on the next one. Thanks a lot, Michael. And thanks to the audience here. And reach out to me anytime to talk about the topics. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable MSK on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Jacob Fleming, and co-hosts Michael Barraza and Chris Beck. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross and Ness Smith Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. 
social media and show notes written by Marvi Espiritu and Anne Dang. Administrative support provided by Junwoo Kennebrew. Thanks again and see you next time.